I don't know about you, but I have all, all kinds of nostalgic memories of the church that I grew up in. I remember the feeling of nervousness when I came up for my first Christmas pageant and stood on the stage. I remember in third grade when I graduated from Sunday school and I got to shake the pastor's big hand. I remember one time in night church when barely anybody was there and I fell asleep on my father's shoulder. And the pastor actually stopped in the middle and said, Mr. Bart, will you please wake up your son? And my father said, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. (laughs) I remember when I got in church because I pulled the fire alarm and I saw a fire truck up close for the very first time. I remember the first time I really got in trouble in church because my grandfather was the janitor and I got caught sneaking little sips of wine out of the communion glasses in the kitchen after communion was done. I was so proud of my church. My grandfather was the janitor there. He cleaned everything and he he was mowing the front lawn and I would drive by and I would would see that and I had these incredible memories. My father and my mother met at that church. My two grandfathers who immigrated from the Netherlands helped to build that church with my eldest uncles. They did it with their own hands. It was one of the biggest churches in our city at the time. And I remember a feeling of a sense of pride even when I would tell somebody what church I went to. That church is now a subdivision. It doesn't exist anymore. And it wasn't just because of uh, white flight in that particular neighborhood, and it wasn't just because of gentrification, it wasn't just because of different economic pressures and changes taking place in the city of Vancouver at that time. It's because the cultural landscape is changing, and there are churches like that closing all over the place. We are living in an incredibly unique cultural moment. I came across this statistic this week. There are more than four former Christians in America for every new convert to Christianity. That hit me right between the eyes. I thought back on classmates that I went to Christian school with who'd no longer walk with the Lord, and I thought about friends, closest friends in my life, that don't either. And it's not just a statistic on a page, it's a reality in my own life and in my own story, in my family tree. Maybe you can relate to this. Things are changing all around us. We're not really sure what to do with all of this, but we know this. We stand at an incredibly unique moment in the church's history. Robert Jones, CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute, says this, I'm struck by the high levels of anxiety and worry on all fronts. Americans are split 49% to 49% on whether America's best days are ahead of us or behind us. Americans of all faiths and viewpoints are gloomy about the economy, anxious about Islam, bothered by immigrants, and mistrustful across racial lines. People are starting to ask questions about whether or not we really are a post-Christian nation. Are we living in that kind of a different time? Has has the, the large middle kind of shifted And we stand at a new time and in a new place. Look at those statistics. From 2013 to 2015, the percentage of Americans who qualify as post-Christian rose by seven percentage points just in those two years alone. All sorts of different factors went into that in terms of people's weekly church attendance, how often they said they pray, whether or not they believed in God, and so on and so forth. 
but it's changing at an incredibly rapid rate. People feel like the tectonic plates of culture underneath them that they thought were so firm and, and could stand on with great surety have changed. And so the, uh, even the idea that somebody could run on a political platform in a national election offering to make America great again tells us already that there's a certain anxiety already within culture that wants to know, was it lost? I don't bring this up because I want to make some sort of political comment in this moment on that, but rather a cultural one. For the simple fact that the question is actually up for grabs. I was surprised how easy of a time I had looking for resources for this series of messages about why they leave and why it matters. And why this is being said and studied of your generation in ways that has never happened before in American history. These are eight of the books on top of my desk right now that I'm reading. I went through each of them in a little bit already this week, and I'm looking forward to more of them as the semester goes on. But there's way more than this. It was easy to fill up half of a bookshelf, half of a whole row on my bookshelf, of everybody commentating on why this is happening trying to explain this new category. The fact that when people fill out surveys in American culture now, nuns or duns are actually a category. Not only that, they're the fastest growing category of religious affiliation in our country today. This is the percentage of Americans claiming no religious identity in a book called Meet Generation Z by James Emery White. It came out in 2017. And look at that steady growth from 1940 on and how fast this is accelerating now. Percentage of Americans claiming no religious identity. For those under 30, it's up to 36%. And climbing. It's changing rapidly. You'll tell stories to other people like I did and I do now about the church that I grew up in and how different it is. Part of what I want to do with, this, with you this semester is just simply talk about and look at the realities of this changing cultural landscape and where the church fits in with this and, and how this is going to play out for you guys and the decisions that you have to make and the ecclesiology that you're going to have to form in new ways and it's just going to have to be different. Alan Hirsch in his book 5Q says it like this, and just so we are absolutely clear-minded about the urgency of the situation, some have predicted that based on current patterns of decline, 2067 will effectively end, be the end of Christianity in Britain. And it's even worse for the Church of Scotland. It is sobering to consider that as far as we can tell, Christianity is on the decline in every Western country, including those in North America where the nuns and the duns are now the, rap the rapidly increasing aspect of the religious landscape. Like it or not, as leaders responsible for our times, we simply have to be willing to submit the inherited ecclesial system to a thoroughgoing audit. We have to accept that what has gotten us to this point in history, which is now long-term trended decline in every setting in the West, will simply not get us to a viable future. We can no longer allow ourselves to act as if more of the same thinking and doing is going to bring about fundamentally different results. As the ever-insightful Albert Einstein noted, the problems of the world cannot be resolved by the same kind of thinking that created those problems in the first place. You are inheriting an incredibly rapid changing church. 
Everybody's studying you. Everybody's asking questions about what you're going to do with this. What will Generation Z do with this? That's what they, we have names for you. We study you. We have names for you. We have graphs for you. This percentage of the population by generation currently alive in the United States and their names by which they typically go by. I got this information and made this pie chart from the U.S. Census Bureau as of 2015. You can see the percentages from the silent generation, the little bit of the greatest generation who are even still left, only 1.2% of the population, and so on and so forth. And you see Gen Z right now, they're at 23%. That was 2015. Statistically speaking, by 2017, you are already now the largest generation in America. And there are unique qualities about you that the rest of us don't understand because you grew up in a world that was different than the one that we did. And you're going to grow up and inherit a church that's going to have to be, it's going to have to be very different than the one that we gave you. Colleges often put out little short cheat sheets, just little lists of descriptors of your generation when you come in. One of them I found in line, online this week said this, that for you, Google has always existed. I first learned Google in grade 9 math as 10 to the 100th power. That's what a Google was. It is now for you a verb, with the world's information at its fingertips. You have never licked a postage stamp or known the disgusting taste of it. Chances are none of you were alive at the same time as Princess Diana, the notorious B.I.G., Jacques Cousteau, or Mother Teresa. For you, the Lion King has always been on Broadway. And if I said to you at the turn of the century, you would likely ask, which one? Very different than what it would have been for us. James Emery White goes on to say in that book that by 2020, members of Generation Z will account for 40% of all consumers. They will not simply influence American culture as any generation would. They will constitute American culture. I hope you have a vested interest in the conversation we're going to have all semester long because it's all about you. And for really good reasons. We need you to rethink and reimagine church in ways that have not done, been done before, at least if it's going to survive in any form in the West, or be a beautiful and positive influence. We used to just simply think that, you know, the world likes Jesus, they just don't like the church, so we sort of got to play around the edges a little bit and just change it up a little bit. But that's not the case. White goes on, says, such findings point to a culture that was saying, God, yes, church, no. Now research shows the deepening crisis, for it points to a culture that says, God, perhaps, Christianity and Christians, no. The idea of even considering church is off the table, but not because those outside the church don't see value in the church, and not because the church itself as the body of Christ is not the hope of the world. The problem is that the church is not being the church, much less the countercultural one. If we were, then God would begin looking good on us again. One of the books I'm reading is called Our Great Big American God, and it's asking the question, have we done something with God? Have we, have we portrayed him to the rest of the world in a way that isn't as beautiful as the scriptures really say it is? Have we made the message anemic? Have we stripped it of its beauty? Have we tried to co-opt its power for our own ambitions and our own ends? These are the questions I want to ask with you. 
You see, people are all pointing and looking at the church, and one of the things the church has to do, and people like pastors like me are going to have to do, is take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what do we look like to the rest of the world? And how will we have to change? I come across cartoons like this all the time. Gee, why is everyone leaving the church? Poking fun at the very fact that it's probably the church that might just be chasing them out. In 2012, Gabe Lyons and Dave Kinnaman came out with a groundbreaking book called Unchristian, in which they surveyed the non-Christian population in America and said, tell us what we look like. These are seven of the top ten answers that they came back with. The number one answer, anti-homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical, too involved in politics, too out of touch, insensitive, boring. You see, we have different options what we get to do when we hear things like that. You can kind of dig in your heels and say that's ridiculous and you can point a finger. You can kind of retreat and pull away from it all and just sort of ignore it. But the one thing that you absolutely cannot do is deny the reality that this is at times how the world sees us. If I'm in the middle of marriage counseling with a couple and she keeps saying, it sounds like this whenever he says stuff and he says, that's not what I'm saying. And she keeps saying, yeah, but it sounds like, and this is what I hear when you say that. At some point in time, he has to wake up and realize, that's what I sound like to her. I might just have to change. If this is who I love, and this is who I'm trying to woo, and this is who I'm trying to pursue, I can stand back and say, I'm right, you're wrong, all I want. But what I look like in the other person's eyes matters deeply. And it may just cause us to have to change more than we're ready or willing to or want to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, to know God is to change. We need change. We need continual transformation. And I'm beginning to wonder how much of my faith, at least as I look back on it, was built more on feelings of nostalgia and comfort in the known than actually excitement about the future and the unknown. And are we okay with that? Are we willing to look long and hard into this mirror and admit that it might just be accurate. It might just be describing what it is that we really look like and who we really are. These are hard words for us to have to hear. This is a collection of bumper stickers as the rest of America makes its own social commentary on the church, on us. What we look like in other people's eyes. It's hard to look at, isn't it? But I think we have to be willing to reimagine and rethink about church. You might like him and you might, might not, but one of the best things or most accurate things Rob Bell ever said was, we need to stop blaming the darkness for being so dark and ask the, bright, the light why it's not shining any brighter. Why do we not look beautiful anymore? Have we changed the gospel to such an extent that it's no longer beautiful, no longer appealing? Do we get to keep blaming the other for that, or do we have to start looking at ourselves? Now, hear me well. I am never going to tell you that we need to change the content of the gospel itself. But how it is that we embody that, and what it is that we look like, and how it is that we serve others, 
seriously needs to be questioned. In another book of his, Rethinking Church, James Emery White asks all sorts of different people on why they actually leave. People who've left the church, the nuns and the duns, these are their number one answers. There was no value in attending. Churches have too many problems. I don't have time. I'm simply not interested. Churches ask for too much money. Church is too boring. Church is irrelevant to my life. I don't believe in God. See that? That's actually the smallest answer. People leave church for a lot of reasons before actual disbelief. It often has more of a disbelief in a church than it does in a disbelief in God. Next week, I want to ask you guys some of these questions, too, about your own feelings about the church. Or if you were to leave, why would it be? And I get, I'm going to pull you anonymously. I'm going to ask you to all bring your cell phones next week to chapel. And we're going to do some live polling and put screens up. Um, and you'll see these answers form on the board in front of you as we begin to ask ourselves these questions. I was fascinated by this book this week, How Jesus Saves the World from Us, and a bit of an answer to this question. Morgan Guyton says, why do the loudest Christian voices today sound so much like the religious authorities who crucified Jesus? And can you, Generation Z, as a, find a beautiful voice for your faith? Can you woo the world back again, the beauty and the wonder of grace? The desirable Jesus that so many met in their pain and longed for and gained an experience of and were never the same. Can we find that? What I'm going to ask you to do all semester long is to formulate your own idea of the ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word used in the New Testament for the called out ones. That's literally what it means. But it's a strange sort of meaning because we're called out, but we're called in. And we're called to live in this weird little tension. We don't just get to leave and huddle away in our own little places. We don't get to get completely swept away in the tide of culture that we lose our identity in it. And ecclesiology is your theology of the church. And I'm going to ask you to think long and hard about what yours is. See, because when Jesus began speaking about the church, he didn't give us a prescription so much as just an assumption that we, just, that we would be. Leaving it wouldn't be an option. Listen to the way that Jesus prays for the church in the farewell discourse. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. You notice the difference in Jesus' own prayer? God, I'm not asking you to take them out. I'm just asking you to protect them. In other words, I'm asking them to stay. And yet all the while, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In the same incarnational way that God called Jesus to woo the world back to him, to the heart of God. So too Jesus is sending you to do the same. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. And my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. You see, that was a chain reaction that's gone down throughout time. And in the next few verses, what we read is actually Jesus praying for you and for me. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, that what we do together influences what comes on the outside. So that the world may believe. That's why. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Can you hear Jesus' heart for the church and for the unity that's required in order to pull this off? We weaken our ability to be that witness every time we disconnect, every time we pull out. In fact, I've been thinking more and more that you actually can't not be the church. If the church is not the locale or the place that you go and visit, but it's the fellowship that we make up when we are all together, then you, we can't not go to church when we are the church. That if you want to be in Christ, you can't just buy into this idea of, of an individualized faith. Our faith is corporate. I need you, and you need me, and we together need Christ. And that's what makes us up. That's what makes us the hope of the world continually. The presence of God within us. Our calling to be the called out ones and the called in ones all at the same time. Our call to be that which is beautiful and refreshing and the best thing that ever happened. Everything you're going to touch and do in this world. Those hands that John asked you to look, at, to look at as we began this morning, as the generations will speak of you, as time goes on, what will they say? Will they describe beautiful hands and the beautiful things that came from it? As the church stands, as this, this incredible turning point. If, if the church in America is not in an identity crisis right now, it ought to be. And you have to ask seriously hard questions right now, and I'm not going to sugarcoat that for you. And yet standing in the middle of that is this incredible opportunity to learn and to do new things. The church will always have the power of God within it. The church will continue to move forward. We might be experiencing something unique in the Western world right now, but the church across the globe is still growing. And maybe a new humility, we might have to take a posture of learning from the other in a new way. Not building our walls up higher, becoming more introspective, but actually looking in humility at others. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I pray for you, Generation Z. I pray for you, students at Door College. I pray for you in this cultural moment in the American church that you would be one. Can you hear Jesus' prayer for us of who we can be and who we should be? Can we hear him reclaiming our identity in the middle of this? Can we ask ourselves some really hard conversations? Some really hard questions? Can we have some hard conversations together? And can we hold out for something beautiful? That's where we're called to be. The best thing that ever happened to your family, the best thing that ever happened to your neighborhood, the best thing that ever happened to your field, that's who you are. Because the church is the hope of the world, and you are the church, and you are now the largest generation in this country. What will you do with this as you form your ecclesiology, as you raise your voice, as you learn to articulate in new and beautiful ways who Jesus really is and who he is to you? Will you go and tell what the Lord has done for you in new and convicting ways? Will you please rise?
Will you hold out your hands? And will you look into them? Father, whatever we create as co-creators with you, may it look like you. May it be beautiful for the world. And may you bring forth from these hands and from these minds and from these lives your life to bless all those around them. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.